Exodus chapter 20. We're continuing on in our series and our look at the Ten Commandments. And this morning, uh, if you are our guest, you picked a doozy of a day to show up. Um, We are on God's forbidding uh, and his command against adultery. You know, individuals lament the loss of a culture that keeps its promises. I've often heard uh, members of the older generation lament or, or laud the days when a man's word was his bond or when a handshake was sufficient to build an empire. But as we think about it and as we dwell on it, and we, it doesn't take us long to, to be honest and say that the truth of the matter is there's never been a generation of humans where uh, contracts and consequences for breaking them weren't necessary. We can go all the way back to Jesus' day, where Jesus began to instruct the people that were listening to him, and, they, and there he told them to let their yes be yes and their no be no. The implication with, of that is that these people were people who broke their promises. And it's not just true of them, it's true of us, and it's true of every generation since the fall of man, that we are people who break our promises. It's just a, a symptom of our sin that you and I are often prone to use others for our own gain and break our word at the first sign of a better deal. And there's probably no better measure of our culture of broken promises than if we look at marriage. When we look at marriage, statistics have held steady for several years that an estimated 50% of marriages are going to end in divorce. One study that I I looked at, a survey, said that the most common reason for divorce was, quote, a lack of commitment. Compounding this is the fact that the rate of marriage has been steadily declining uh, over the last several decades as people are trading in covenant commitment of marriage as some outdated institution of religious repression, and instead more couples are optioning for cohabitation, civil unions, and the like. But this isn't God's best for us, and it's definitely not God's best for our society or his world. Instead, God gave us a good gift, which is marriage. It's a gift that's good for us societally, personally, and spiritually. But most of all, God gave us marriage as a reminder that he's a God who makes promises and keeps his promises. And so we should reflect him in that same way. Marriage is God's gift for our good, for his glory, and it must be guarded against every attack. Look with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read one simple verse, which in the Hebrew is only two words. Verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and I just submit myself and surrender this time to you. I pray that you would soften our hearts, make us humble, Father God, would you guard and keep us from uh, the voice of the enemy that would come in right now and take a message that is meant to build us and move us towards your grace and instead be a voice of condemnation that would tear us down. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in spite of it all, we would be a people that seek in your word uh, and through your word to understand you more and in understanding you, Heavenly Father, to understand the world that you have created for us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be a people who are faithful, not only to one another, but to you. So I pray that your hand of protection would be upon me, your hand of protection would be upon every heart that is in this room, and the time that we have together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Marriage is God's gift for our good and for his glory, and must be guarded against every single attack. 
As we've been working through the Ten Commandments, we've been striving to see them as God intended them uh, as opposed to how we tend to approach them. And what we've seen is that it's our tendency to oversimplify and underinterpret the commands, and in doing so, we give way to our tendency to turn them just into a list uh, of do's and don'ts that we get to, to keep, and then we get to make ourselves feel good by the fact that I have a good record of my behavior. But what we have found is that these commandments have roots that are far deeper than we ever imagined. And since they have roots that go deeper than we imagined, they have trees or, or, or plants that grow from them that are branches that are higher and reach farther than we could have ever thought. Each word we see in these ten words that God gives to his people is, um, a, introduces a broader paradigm that's supposed to guide our Moral, more than just our morality, it's supposed to shape our hearts and our affections. If you go all the way back to the very first message that we preached on this, I'll, I'll remind you that we recognize that God gives these commandments not just to structure our lives, but to communicate something to us about what he values. And so when we understand that these commandments are not just here to give us a list of rules, but to expose God's heart, then we realize that these Ten Commandments are actually an invitation to worship the Lord. The fact that God values life because every life is imprinted with his value communicates that God is someone who adores us, who loves us, and invites us into a relationship with him and who wants to guard and protect us. And so we can worship him not only as the giver, but the guardian of life. So when we're looking at this command, we want to uh, go deeper than this. We want to, it's tempting to just jump right in and look at the surface and speak immediately about adultery. But before we can get there, we have to understand the foundation that Moses already assumes. It's assumed in this verse that there is a practice of marriage among God's people, and it's assumed that marriage matters. And so we have to start with the biblical foundation that we find in Scripture that first and foremost, marriage, as we've said, is God's gift for our good and for his glory. Maybe you have come across in a doctor's office, a dental office, one of those pictures. It's called an autostereogram. That autostereogram is that really weird picture that hangs on the wall that just looks like a, just a mesh of all kinds of worthless or, or unrelated stuff. But supposedly, if you're able to look at it without looking at it, I haven't figured that out quite yet. Look at it without looking at it. You're allowed to let yourself get out of focus. And when you do that, a picture comes out of this mesh of whatever is there that just looks like a mess. It's called an autostereogram. It can be easy for us when we look at marriage to only look at its surface and to see when we come at the beginning of marriage the glamour of a wedding and only see this celebration of love. Later on in life, it can be tempting to reduce marriage to nothing more than a legal contract that can be broken when the cost of staying married is too high. At any point in between, we can see it as something that is unfulfillment and so we seek fulfillment somewhere else. But like an autostereogram, there is so much more to marriage than just what we see on the surface. God designed marriage, and God gave it an, a meaning that is deeper than we could ever possibly think or imagined. He's giving it a beauty and a boundaries for specific purposes. And if we're going to understand the full beauty of marriage, we have to understand God's good design for marriage. We first see marriage introduced in Genesis chapter 2. And there we read that, um, the, uh, and the rib that God, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Some things that come out of this passage of Scripture, but not only this passage of Scripture, the multiple times that this passage of Scripture is quoted and referenced throughout the Bible are some important things that we need to understand. First and foremost, marriage is by God's design. Marriage is by God's design first. It's God who created the man. It's God who created the woman. He created them both similar and yet distinct so that he has a man and a woman, two individuals that though similar complement one another in a very specific way. And these distinctions between men and women are inherent to us because of God's design. They then, that inherent distinction gives rise to the physical, emotional, mental, behavioral, societal, etc. distinctions, not the other way around. Gender is not a social construct. It is a design given to each and every individual by the God who creates us. And not only does he create us as individuals, God then unites this man and this woman as one in a bond that we come to understand to be marriage. It's God who brings the woman to the man. It's God who initiates this union. It's God who binds them together in what the Bible says is this one flesh union as he oversees this union and the commitment of the man and woman together and he spiritually unites them as one flesh. So marriage is by God's design, but marriage is also for our good. When the Lord created the world in Genesis chapter 1, we read there this repeated phrase that God saw it and it was good. It was good and he ends Genesis chapter 1 by declaring that it was very good. But when we get to Genesis chapter 2, we read that something is not good. And what is not good is that the man is alone. And so because God cares for us and cares for our good and loves to give us good gifts, God decided that he would then create for this man a helper suitable to him who would then come into his life and by her presence in his life would allow him and support him to then grow into everything that God created him to be that he couldn't be without her in his life. And he brought this woman to her, this companion made specifically for him and united them together in the most intimate of human relationships. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 25, and we read that they were naked and unashamed, we oftentimes tend to take the one flesh union and just boil it down to the sexual component of a husband and wife's relationship. But the biblical picture of this one flesh union is far more, uh, is far deeper than just the sexual component of a marriage relationship. We see throughout Scripture that there is an expectation that this oneness brings a physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual intimacy. This notion that they were naked and unashamed is only meant to portray the broader principle that they are able to stand before one another in their most vulnerable condition and be unashamed. That's God's ideal for marriage. And for that kind of intimacy to exist, there has to be a trust. If I can't share my bank account with my husband, if I won't share my passwords to my phone or my email accounts with my wife, 
If I won't speak openly about my hurts and hang-ups and habits with my spouse, I'm not living out the one flesh union of God's ideal. He calls us to a deep intimacy for our good. And because marriage is meant to be this place where a man and a woman find companionship in this deep vulnerability and intimacy, it requires a permanence that no other human relationship has. Which is why when Jesus quotes this passage of Scripture later on in the New Testament, he gives this interpretive word in Mark chapter 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus emphasizes this because marriage is meant by God to be that place of vulnerability, of relationship, of companionship, of joy, of beauty, of sexual intimacy, and it then needs to be protected permanently. So marriage is a gift of God's grace for our growth, for our companionship, for our protection, but, more, but marriage is about more than just your good and mine. Marriage is designed by God. It's designed by God for our good. It's designed by God for his glory. In the Old Testament, God consistently uses marriage as a symbol or an illustration of his covenant relationship with his people. Just one example is in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, where there Isaiah says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he has called. Again and again throughout the prophets, God calls his people back to this covenant relationship with God, and he uses marriage as as an instrument, as an illustration, if you will, of his covenant relationship with his people. We see this elevated when we get to the New Testament where Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says that marriage is a mystery that is supposed to be a divine display of the gospel. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I'm saying that it refers here to Christ and the church. What Paul has said as marriage is a given by God's not only design for our good, but ultimately for his glory, he's teaching that the relationship between Jesus and his church is symbolized and seen, if you will, in the marriage. Marriage is a window through which we look and we can see God's glory and we can see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we learn is that Jesus sacrificed himself. He loved his bride to the point of giving his own life, that she might be saved, redeemed, washed by the water of the word, and presented to him purified, restored. And he accomplishes this in his loving sacrifice for them. And in response to Christ's sacrificial love, the church, all those who have been rescued from our sin, who have been redeemed, who have been united to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, the church then submits to him and honors him as the head of the church. And so Paul goes on to say that in the same way, marriage is a picture of this relationship where husbands are to love their wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. That the church is then, or the wife is then to submit and love her husband and respect her husband just as the church loves and respects Christ. And as we are obedient, marriage becomes the stage upon which we proclaim the gospel to the world. Husbands, how you treat your wives says something about what you believe to be true about how Jesus treats his church. Wives, how you treat your husband declares something about what you believe to be true about how the church treats Jesus. How you live your marriage is bigger than you or me. It's the opportunity to show the gospel. 
to your friends, to your neighbors, to your family, and to the world. So then we can conclude biblical foundation on marriage. As marriage is the intimate, exclusive, permanent commitment of one man and one woman to one another in a relationship that declares the glory of God. There's plenty of different definitions, but best I can do right now is marriage is the intimate, exclusive, permanent commitment of one man and one woman to one another in a relationship that declares the glory of God. And because marriage is bigger than just you and me, because God has infused it with such significance, we can understand that it is a target of the attack of the enemy. And it is the target of our own sin to rebel against God's good design and run into brokenness and try to do this in our own strength and in our own way. And God knows that as sinners, we're prone to breaking our vows and straying from our spouse. And so desiring to guard our marriages from attack, God now gives this command that forbids adultery. Adultery, I'm going to go broad on this one and I'll explain how I get there. Adultery is any attack on God's good gift of marriage. Adultery is any attack on God's good gift of marriage. To come to this conclusion, we've got to dig, like we did last week, beneath the surface of the command and find its roots. What God commands here is marital faithfulness. God's command here is to be faithful to your own marriage. At its most basic level, Doug Stewart defines or explains this command in this way. No one is allowed to have sex with any married person except his or her spouse, and no married person is allowed to have sex with anyone other than his or her spouse. At its most basic level, that's what this command means. And our tendency, though, is to leave it there and to say, well, I've never had sex, so I have not broken this command. I'm a 90s kid means that I'm a 30-year-old man now, 30-plus. But I can still remember this, the, the social uh, blow-up of Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And I can remember um, my parents and other evangelicals standing up and, and being so angry as they deplored Bill Clinton for standing on that stage and saying, I did not have sex with that woman. And he had so specifically defined sex to just be sexual intercourse, that he missed the broader heart of God's command and the biblical sexual ethic. And evangelicals deplored Bill Clinton for this failed logic, but the truth of the matter is I grew up in the evangelical church and it wasn't just true of the president, it was true of our youth groups. I grew up in the true love waits environment that idolized virginity and that said as long as I don't cross that line, I'm okay. As long as I haven't had sexual intercourse, I'm fine. I can remember conversation after conversation in the youth groups that asked the question, how far is too far? In other words, how close can I come to sin and still be good with God? Rather than ask the question, how fast can I run after Jesus and how far can I run from sex and sin and lust? Michael Horton says this, legalists are concerned about lines, whereas scripture regards sin first and foremost as a condition and only secondarily as an act. Beyond lines, then, adultery is a matter of the heart. We found this out when it comes to do not murder, that murder comes from somewhere. It's not just sped up in a vacuum. 
Adultery comes from somewhere, and Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that it comes from the heart, where Jesus says, if I I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus taught us that sin starts inside of us. Before it is an action in our hands, it has come through our head and our hearts from inside. And so taking up Jesus' logic and applying it not only to this command, but all of the rest of the ten, we can conclude with Philip Rikens this. The ten commandments generally rule out the most extreme form of every kind of sin. But by implication, they also rule out all the lesser sins that lead up to it. In the case of the seventh commandment, what is forbidden is everything that causes adultery. It's not just the act of sexual intercourse. It is absolutely everything that would lead to it. It is any violation of God's good ideal and command for marriage. So, as we seem attempted to try to apply this in some way, it's not then okay for any man, even as Jesus has said here in Matthew chapter 5, 28, any man or woman to look on anyone in such a way that they imagine a sexual relationship with that person who's not their spouse. And that would extend into a man who indulges his lust through pornography, through strip clubs or any other form. And men oftentimes take the the beating on this, and it's true, and we need that. But ladies, I want to take a moment and say that this command also says you're not free to engage in emotional eroticism. This command forbids emotional attachments with anyone else that take away from marital intimacy, what we would call an emotional affair. And that can happen for men and for women, but we've said it regularly that men are easily visually stimulated, and women oftentimes are more easily stimulated emotionally. And so as we would seek to apply this, I would tell you, and I know that this is controversial, but I would say any movie or any book that causes you to look with disfavor upon your husband or to fantasize about another man, real or imaginary, are as sinful as pornography. And while I'm sitting here, let's think real logically, let's think real ethically about the things that we are watching, whether in movies or on shows. I recently read a really great article that talks about and exposes the fact that when we come to the the media that we consume, what we often say is that if there is no blatant sexuality, no blatant nudity, As long as it's only simulated sex, then we're in the clear, and we judge whether or not something is acceptable for us to watch based on what we are exposed to. But if this command is really under the broader principle that you and I are to love our neighbors as ourselves, then what we have to realize is that person that is on the other side of the screen is a neighbor that we are commanded to love. And for the sake of our own entertainment, whether it is their career or not, we have asked that individual, that man or that woman created in the image of God, who is someone's husband, who is someone's spouse, to stand in a room in various stages of undress in front of someone else and an entire room full of people and simulate sexual acts for our pleasure and our entertainment. That is not okay. 
in that we are contributing to their violation of this command and therefore are guilty as secondary individuals. We must guard what we watch, we must guard what we read, we must guard what we see with our eyes and take into our hearts. But broader than this, this command forbids every form of sexual immorality, whether it's premarital sex or sexual activity, sexual assault or abuse, prostitution, illicit chatting over different types of apps, homosexuality, rape, pedophilia, incest, on down the line. All this flows naturally out of this command against adultery. But Jesus adds one more additional element when we come to the New Testament. In Mark chapter, 11, or chapter 10, verses 11 through 12, he says this, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus here says that to remarry after a divorce without biblical grounds for the divorce in the first place is an act of adultery. And we can have long conversations about what that means and deeper conversations about how to apply that, but just briefly, I believe the Bible clearly teaches that unrepentant adultery, abandonment, and by extension, unrepentant abuse are all biblical grounds that would allow someone to remarry after a divorce without violating this command. But moving on and not laboring there, we can finally break this command not only by our actions, but our inactions. Just as we learned last week that it's not just enough to say, well, I've never killed anybody, but do we actively stand for life and protect life and love life at every stage, whether it is the unborn baby, it is the um, comatose person in the, the nursing home, or it be that homeless person on the side of the street. The negative expression of this command is do not commit adultery. And if we were to reword it positively, we would say that this command says nurture your marriage in every way possible. Negatively, don't commit adultery. Okay, what does that mean that I'm supposed to do? Give yourself to your marriage exclusively. To neglect our marriage emotionally, relationally, financially, sexually, spiritually is as much a violation of this command as having sex outside of marriage. So very quickly, practically, I'm just going to throw, run through some ideas that you can jot down. First and foremost, spiritually, wage war on your sin. If you want to protect your marriage, wage war on your sin. Jesus said, associated with this, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Don't allow yourself to go down the road. Stop yourself before you get there. Confess your sin of pornography. Confess your sin of that emotional connection with someone that is causing you to question your relationship with your spouse. Wage war on your sin. Spiritually, the ways that you can protect your marriage is pray together. It's often said, those who pray together stay together. Pray with your spouse. Make it a priority. Serve alongside of one another in the church, in the community. It's side by side serving and giving of yourself that gives, that builds bonds that are deeper than what we can get beyond that. Relationally, husbands, date your wives. Let's just admit, we're notorious for being lazy. We do the whole pursuit, and then we get her married, and then we're just, okay, we're done. I did what I needed to do. I've got her locked in, contract signed, and here I can go. Date your wife. Come home from the office Set aside the rat race of trying to accomplish everything that you need to get what you want and instead look your wife in the eye and tell her that you love her. Date your wife. 
Wives, likewise, give yourselves to your husbands. Don't neglect the sexual component of your relationship. Paul says that that is, a, that is a doorway into sexual sin and temptation for your husband. So even if you have to put it on the calendar, I know that doesn't sound romantic, but it's better that it be on there as an appointment with your husband, but the key is to prioritize this as an act of war against adultery in your marriage. So there's some spiritual ideas, some relational ideas, emotionally and mentally, learn together. Make it a commitment that you're going to read a book on marriage, a biblical book on marriage together. We've got some phenomenal books on marriage in our library. I can recommend some phenomenal books on marriage for you and for your spouse. Read a book together. Go to a conference together. Listen to a sermon together. Talk about it. Engage with one another emotionally and mentally. Talk about your interests with one another and grow, sacrifice, participate in one another's hobbies and habits. And where there is deep pain and scars, seek counseling. There's no reason to be ashamed of that. Sarah and I have sat through counseling together. We've invested in our marriage that way because it's that important. You don't need to be ashamed. Ask for help. We're here to help as a church. I'm here to help as your pastor. I would be glad to to walk through some biblical counseling so that we can strengthen your marriage and we can see your marriage saved. Or if, if you want, I'd be glad to refer you to somebody that I know and that I trust. But those are some ways that we can actively protect our marriages. And we could keep going into the nitty-gritty of of trying to apply this command, but I think that this overview is sufficient to leave every single person in this room feeling the weight of our sin. Whether by our thoughts, our actions, or even our inactions, we all stand guilty of violating this command at one level or another. We're all those, whether we are married, divorced, or waiting to be married, we have failed, according to, to be Uh, obedient to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 which says let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous and so that's why we each and every one need to remember that as good of a gift as marriage is God's greater gift to those who break their promises is his grace 2 Timothy 2 13 says if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself We're a people that break our promises. We're a people that violate this command. We're a people who give ourselves away, who fail to love the Lord with all of our hearts, who fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. We sin against our spouse. We sin against our homes. We sin against our community. But most of all, we sin against the Lord. Nevertheless, it's God who defines himself as the God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in unending love. And so no matter how far you may stray, no matter how far I may stray, no matter how blatantly I may sin, God's grace is greater still. And it can be tempting for every single one of us to run from him. Dane Ortland points out in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that I would still encourage you to read. I gave every family a copy in the, every family in the church a copy. If you need another one, I'd be glad to give you one. But I urge you to read this book. Because in that book, Dane Ortland says that it's often our fear to come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, either because we're afraid that God is angry or disappointed with us, or that somehow we will detract from God and his glory when we come to him with our need. But the scripture teaches us that all those who are in Christ are part of Christ's body. I don't hate my pinky no matter how much it hurts. 
Instead, when I have a part of my body that is being attacked by a disease, I do everything that is necessary in order to care and treat that part of my body and kill whatever it is that is attacking me. In the same way, Jesus Christ loves you and me in such a way that he doesn't hate us because of our sin. He doesn't look down on us because of our sin. And he is not diminished because of our sin. But instead, his grace abounds for the people who need it. So when we're in our sin, we don't need to run from God. We need to run to him to receive what only he can give, which is grace and forgiveness. So if you're here today and you're someone who is being tempted to this sin of adultery, to violate the marital command and the marital marital ideal, then the Bible would have you do one thing, run to Jesus. If you're here and you are someone who has sinned and committed adultery, then the Bible would tell you, run to Jesus. If you're here and you are someone who is wounded and scarred, either because you are a victim of someone else's sin, whether you're a child of a broken home, whether you are a woman who has been hurt by adultery, then the Bible would tell you, run to Jesus. Because he's the one who's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Everything is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And the love that you failed to receive from your spouse, the love that you failed to receive from your parents, the love that you failed to receive from your friends or from churches or from pastors or from other Christians is made full in Jesus Christ and perfect only there. And when we receive his love poured into us by his grace, that is the fountain that then allows us to love our spouses in the way that God calls us to love. No amount of gimmicks, no amount of steps is going to allow you to do what only Jesus Christ can do. You'll never be able to stir up enough love in your heart to love that difficult person in your life. But when you realize you are the difficult person and God has poured his love into you, you'll be humbled and receive the love that you're able to then give away. God commands us to love him and he commands us to love others, but he never commands us to do that in our own strength because he says, you love because you have been loved first by him. Are you sitting in a loving relationship with God today or are you running from him into your sin and into your brokenness? Then the invitation is to stop running into your sin and your brokenness and run to Jesus and turn from yourself and turn from your sin and trust in him and receive from him the grace that he freely offers because of his sacrifice for you as he laid down his life for your good and for his glory on the cross that you might be forgiven of your sins, you might be adopted into God's family, and that you might be set free from every weight and hindrance that would keep you from running with endurance the race that God has set before you. Would you look to Jesus today? Would you run to Christ for salvation, for sanctification, for help today?